Hello and welcome to the Alpine Threat and Fraud Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss business approaches to reduce risk, improve regulatory compliance, and accelerate public safety. Now, this is a pretty broad subject, and each episode will focus on specific challenges, technologies, and roles that are relevant as we seek to protect our assets, our organizations, and our employees, and generally to keep the bad guys away. So in this episode, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about a problem that unfortunately we see nearly every day on the news here in the United States, mass shootings. My name is Earl Stevens, and I'm the Director of Threat and Fraud here at Alpine Consulting, and I'm joined by Stan Duda, Alpine's founder and CEO. So Stan, great to be with you today. Thanks for joining us here. You bet. You bet. Thanks for your time, Earl. Appreciate it. First of all, there's some confusion around what a mass shooting is. Can you talk a little bit about mass shootings and contrast that with uh, some other terms that we hear out there? Yeah, you bet. Great, great question. So, you know, mass shootings really fundamentally are an event where we've got four or more people that are shot, which differs, of course, from mass murders, an event where four or more people, frankly, are killed. Not uh, not a pleasant uh, topic to talk about, but it is a little confusing. Uh, and those terms are thrown around and are not necessarily interchangeable. There is a there's a distinct difference. It's interesting, and I know that uh, we we gather a lot of statistics about this. Uh, and we track that uh, some from our own perspective, so that we can try and figure out trending, but also see if there's any any patterns or ways in which we can address that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those statistics that we do track. And we're going to hone in on uh, mass shooting statistics here. I'm not going to talk about mass murders or gun violence in general, other than in the United States, there's there's around 40,000 gun-related deaths each year uh, from all sources. So that includes, you know, murders, suicides, mass shootings and mass murders. Um, But we're looking at, you know, a decent-sized college football stadium full of people that we lose each year due to uh, gun-related deaths. And a subset of that is mass shootings. Uh, So in 2019, year-to-date, and this includes the three people who died yesterday in Hawaii and one who was injured uh, in Pearl Harbor, so far this year there's been 390 events uh, or examples of mass shootings. Those events have resulted in 436 people killed and 1,576 people injured, and that's as of today. In 2019, two of the top 20 deadliest shootings have occurred uh, in this calendar year. So that's the El Paso Walmart shooting in in Virginia Beach. And six of the top 10 uh, deadliest shootings have occurred during this decade, including four of the top five. You know, if you think of the, the past few years, we've had the Las Vegas Mandalay Bay shooting, the Orlando nightclub and Sandy Hook, Sutherland Springs, all of those have happened during this past uh, decade. So let's contrast the numbers of 2019 to 2018. Last year, we had 371 mass shooting events, 371 were killed, 1336 injured. And so if 2019 continues along the same path that we've been going down this year, we're heading for between a 22 and 25% increase in events, injuries, and deaths. And if we contrast that further, look uh, over the past five years ago, or actually back in 2014, 
if we compare 2019 to 2014, we're looking at 53% more mass shooting events, 75% more deaths, and 54% more people injured. So this is an alarming trend where we're looking at the increased frequency of these types of events and a higher frequency of deaths and injuries. And the sad thing is there's a 60% chance that at least one mass shooting will occur in our country today. I sat down yesterday afternoon and pulled together some of these statistics. And in that time frame, we had that Hawaii shooting where, again, four more people were killed or injured um, and added to that list. You know, between yesterday and today, that statistic held true. There's also a 17% chance that two or more mass shooting events will occur uh, today as well. Stan, what's your take on that? You look at that, especially as you as you reflect on yesterday's events in Hawaii and where these shootings occur, and obviously anywhere where people congregate, there's the the chance, the opportunity for a, for a mass shooting. And in the past year, mass shootings obviously have occurred in shopping centers and schools, universities, places of work, entertainment venues, festivals, heck, even house parties. There was also obviously a a long laundry list of places of worship and restaurants. It, it knows no bounds, sadly. It's really ultimately where people congregate. I think that's how you answer it. It's wherever people congregate, that's where these events happen. Having the ability you know, to address those, and it's not a matter of limiting it to one or two types of venues in which to deploy resources, resources in the way of personnel or technology. It really knows no bounds. In fact, we are talking with quite a number of even commercial building management companies in an effort to try and help protect users or or folks that are users of those facilities. I was meeting with a client just recently here on a very different kind of project uh, work that we do for them. And uh, they happened to mention in passing that they had an employee in a parking garage, for goodness sake, that was held at gunpoint. They have cameras, but they're not being utilized within those facilities as far as any automatic detection or anything along those lines. And ultimately, they weren't able to, to identify the individual uh, because of the way in which the cameras were monitored, and they were long gone by the time police ultimately arrived at the scene. But thankfully, that individual walked away and no harm was imposed upon them. So it, it's difficult both from a law enforcement point of view and then a safety point of view at the venues themselves to to be able to respond to these incidents. So who, who's committing the shootings ultimately? I guess you can remember the study that came out uh, earlier this year. The folks at the Violence Project took two years studying these mass shootings. And the perpetrators and victims of those events, they found four commonalities among those perpetrators. And I thought it'd be good for us to kind of talk through some of those you know, the early childhood trauma and exposure to violence at young age, you know, the, the nature of the, their exposure included parental suicide or physical or sexual abuse, neglect, some domestic violence and or severe bullying. You know, the trauma was often a precursor to the mental health condition, including depression and anxiety and thought disorders or suicidality. It's not easy stuff to recognize but after the fact, we can look back and at least identify potential uh, risk indicators for, for individuals. This violence project study, for anybody that hasn't seen it, will include a link to that in the, uh, in the episode notes here. 
but they, they again they boiled it down to these four elements and the second element that they talk about is uh you know Stan discussed the first one where they're exposed to trauma and, and uh, violence at a young age uh the next precursor is that shooters had reached an identifiable crisis point leading up to the shooting and that could have been a number of things it could have been a job loss a relationship change or some other trigger. And uh, this isn't the, the type of event that these people were keeping to themselves. In the majority of cases, the crises were well known to others and were accompanied by behavioral changes. So they were, they were telling others about their problems. It was well known that the individual was having things like suicidal thoughts, that they were making plans for revenge or to harm themselves or others, or had outright you know, threatened violence. And so big indicator, and that's something that we can do if we see somebody in this condition, if we know that they've had early childhood trauma, they've had some kind of traumatic event in their life recently, a crisis point or a trigger, our red flag should be going up right there. It's interesting, you know, the, the other thing that they concluded was that the shooters studied up on the actions of other shooters and sought validation for their motives. You know, the perpetrators studied how, how others had essentially accomplished these uh, horrific events, and they modeled their acts after the previous shootings. The notoriety of other shooters validates and reinforces their decisions. Uh, and that's, that's troubling. You, you, you want to, of course, share the news so that people are aware, and, and we're trying to learn from these these events. But not trying to, to push or promote or publicize, uh, which gives them validation is a, is a challenging area. This is particularly interesting. The, you know, in the, the article where they're talking about this study, they talk about, hey, mass shootings tend to occur um, or it's common for them to occur in clusters because, you know, if, if somebody's on the edge and thinking about something and they see a mass shooting occur and they start talking about the perpetrator and his motives, that almost emboldens the individual to, yeah, well, this guy did it and look, he's on TV and he's getting notoriety and he got his revenge, so I'm going to get mine. It almost uh, helps them justify uh, their own actions there and, you know, hey, somebody's somebody's jumped first and so, you know, now it's my time there. And that leads us to the the fourth element that, the, uh, that indicates, you know, risk of a shooter. Uh, and this is interesting too. Shooters have the means to carry out their plans. Um, and this basically means that they've either got the financial wherewithal or access to the weapon to do this type of thing. And so the majority of weapons in a mass shooting are either legally owned by the shooter or they're easily accessible from a friend or family member. And so, you know, if, if you're a gun owner, you need to be very cognizant um, and guarded about who you loan your guns out to. You know, lock those things up. Don't let them be accessible to others. And, you know, we're seeing some examples where people are legally liable for the crimes that others commit with their guns. We're seeing legislation and people starting to talk about that. So be careful with your firearms. Be careful who you loan those out to because you may be giving the means to somebody that's on the edge to commit this type of thing. You know, so I guess the question that, that begs to be asked is what what can we do to prevent some of these mass shootings? You know, we're not we're not going to just stop all of them. We're not going to have one solution and and it'll it'll be fixed. It's obviously a very complex issue to to address with so many facets that 
that it's not a one size fits all. Yeah, it, it's not. And this is going to sound a little bit idealistic and probably sappy, uh, maybe even naive. But the ultimate solution um, we believe involves, you know, loving our neighbor and taking personal responsibility for the well-being of everyone we encounter, specifically those that are mentally ill or going through a crisis. And so we're, we're seeing people starting to realize this, that there's talk about increased funding and awareness of mental health resources. Uh, this is critical in addressing the problem. You know, caring for those around you is something that we can all do right now at an individual level. So you can probably think of a couple examples where you were going through a rough time and a simple gesture or a few kind words made a huge difference. You know, somebody took responsibility. They recognized that you were going through a tough time and helped you get through it. You know, at, at the micro level, let's care for those that are around us and, and take some personal responsibility. You know, if we can get everybody on board with the, you know, love your neighbor, care for your neighbor approach, I think we could lick the problem of mass shootings pretty quickly. But if we look back on the history of mankind, we have traditionally sucked at caring for our neighbor. I, I agree. And, and I, I really, to your point, I realize that that's a, a bit idealistic. But at the same time, you know, there there are other other things that we can, as a society, be doing. It's not a one point solution. We have to take a more defensive approach, you know, vigilance and essentially early warnings for firearms related threats. From our perspective, I guess the area that we're we're trying to take a closer look at using and, and helping to at least provide some early warning such that people can be enabled to, to respond proactively instead of reactively. Uh, and that really comes down to the zero-wise technology. We've been working with folks at, at ZeroEyes for much of 2019. They're a former group of Navy SEALs who managed to channel a lot of their experience and in, in training into artificial intelligence technology that identifies weapons and provides intelligence on the threat so that those responsible for addressing those threats can take action. So as an example, um, somebody's out in the parking lot at a school, they are intending to cause harm and fear. They brandish a weapon, pulling it out and start marching towards the school with the weapon exposed. The cameras that, that pick up the weapon and if we can uh, notify folks, and, and I don't mean somebody sitting behind a monitor because, you know, people get up from their, from their desks and those monitors are not always easily uh, monitored because they've got other activities, other, other parts of their job. It's an opportunity if we can automate that and and identify the presence of a, of a weapon through that artificial intelligence, perhaps we can get ahead of it and provide early warning to those so that they can react more proactively instead of reactively. To add to that, Stan, uh, we've got the question before, well, hey, what do... What can Navy SEALs bring to the conversation, you know, in terms of a, a school shooter or somebody breaking into the workplace and, and shooting the workplace up? You know, these guys, if we talked to them, have obviously had, you know, several tours of duty in the Middle East and other areas that often involves going into a building where they have insufficient intelligence. Who's in the building? Are they armed? Are they not armed? Are there children? Are there civilians? You know, what is the threat? They've all lost dear friends due to the lack of intelligence that occurs in those situations. And so as they've had time to think about it, they said, hey, what if we use technology 
to help give us that intelligence so that when we do react to these situations that we know, you know, is there a weapon? How many people are there? How many weapons? Where are they located? And that was the kind of thought process that went into developing this artificial intelligence technology. It's giving the right information at the right time in the right format to those trained to deal with weapons type threats. So you're not walking into something blind. And, I do. and that doesn't mean only those that are first responders. That that also means, you know, administrators or safety and security people uh, or school resource officers, folks that are there to help to protect by enacting procedures to shield and save lives, you know, getting a jump so that they can enact lockdown procedures before the shooter uh, should enter uh, it into an area. Earl, you talked about the location in which these horrific events occurred. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the use of zero eyes would differ, if at all, based on those those different uh, locations. One thing that we're aware of: some of some venues have better emergency plans than others. Or, you know, for example, at a school, they go through drills for earthquakes, for fires, um, and for active shooters, and so those protocols on how students and faculty should act are pretty well defined there. Um, Not so much in a shopping center. I think the security folks, the loss prevention folks, their law enforcement partners know what to do. But for the average person in a shopping center, if you hear shots fired, you're probably going to be running or so that the big difference there is, you know, everybody's got uh, some kind of an emergency plan and uh, zero eyes can fit into that. So if you've got cameras installed, and most places do now, zero eyes sits on your existing camera infrastructure and it scans for weapons. Once a weapon is found, images of the weapon and the shooters or, or the weapons and shooters are sent to those trained to deal with that type of threat. Once those alerts are received and validated, then you can kick into your to your emergency management plan and take care of it. And, and plans are going to vary you know, again, by by venue, they're going to be different if you're in a school, uh, than a shopping center, than a church and a workplace. But the point is, if you have targeted intelligence about what the threat is, what kind of weapons, the number of weapons, the shooter, the location, those individuals that are kicking off that emergency plan and, and responsible for executing it are smarter and uh, better equipped to uh, address that threat. Great, great points. If someone was interested in the technology within their environment, what sorts of information would they need to provide in order to evaluate it? You know what? We we usually ask them to talk about their venue, um, if they've got floor maps, uh, camera locations, that kind of thing. We'll, we'll go through and, and talk to them about where those cameras are located, what their current emergency plan is, just get a good idea of that, and then we can help them to figure out if and how uh, Zero Eyes can fit in. You know, we'll ask them about the number and types of cameras that are currently deployed, whether they're analog or digital. And if you've got a centralized surveillance facility or video management system, we'll have some conversations around that. And uh, we'll get together and assess the fit of Zero Eyes and where we could help. Also, what the escalation path is, who receives the weapons alerts, what they do once they receive them. You know, do they want to communicate those to law enforcement? Are there others that need to be involved? You know, if you're a school, you might have a campus safety application. At some point, you'll want to pull the fire alarm and and make students and faculty aware. So we'll talk about all those kinds of things. And it can be as simple as if you're a, a 
single church location, the alert gets sent to the uh, the security director or the pastor, and they kick it off from there all the way up to, you know, a more sophisticated university system type of emergency plan where, you know, you've got a different plan for each building or each facility and, you know, there are conditions and uh, different things that need to be happened. So, you know, the, the main thing to the emergency plan that you have and, and uh, coming up with a strategy and seeing how we can fit this technology in. It's it's interesting. I think one of the other areas that uh, you mentioned the university, for example, and there's a lot of locations on the campus. Also, we've got uh, some of the school districts, larger school districts that have many campuses and they do centralized monitoring. First of all, who typically does the monitoring uh, for these? You'd mentioned like in a church, it could be a safety uh, or security resource individual or even the pastor. But in a larger deployment, how does that typically happen? If you have a centralized surveillance facility, you've got um, a number of people that are watching these camera feeds. A lot of times if there's a you know, a fight or an event in a school, they'll hone in on that event and relay information via their dispatch system to the school resource officers or law enforcement themselves and kind of coordinate activities that way. And that's uh, what we're seeing in these centralized facilities is if if you get a zero eyes alert on a weapon, that uh, that alert's going to be sent to somebody in the surveillance center. They'll be able to validate that threat quickly. Hey, is this a is this a real gun or is this an ROTC rifle that somebody's carrying down the hall? Uh, once they validate that threat, then they can hone in on all the video feeds from that particular location. Uh, they can communicate with law enforcement, their school resource officers, and quickly get a sense for where that individual is and and send resources to to address that threat. And I know that we've talked with a lot of organizations that either have cameras or are going through a process of upgrading their cameras. It's important to note that we can typically work with most any of the cameras that already exist on site and not have to expend uh, tens of thousands or frankly millions of dollars to redeploy and utilize our own set of cameras, we literally can piggyback onto the existing cameras, regardless of both the type of camera as well as the type of video management system. In fact, we could play with any video management system. We don't have to integrate into it. Um, All we're doing is taking that feed and into our uh, our platform in order to, to monitor that. That's a big point insofar as the deployment. Tell us a little bit about kind of just the how long a, a deployment might take to, to kick off. Deploying a, a solution like ZeroEyes uh, isn't a huge science project. It's basically us coming in and mapping uh, your camera IPs into the solution and configuring that so the artificial intelligence can monitor those video feeds. And so if we're doing a single building, we can have that up and running in, in three or four days and spend a couple of days testing and tuning that and really, you know, start on a Monday and have that solution delivered to you on a Friday. Um, obviously, if you've got a multi-location, you know, facility or a group of buildings, it's going to take a little bit longer. Uh, but a single location is is a couple of days worth of work. And we can deploy both cloud and on-premise. Is that correct? We can, yeah. It's uh, you know, if you have a centralized surveillance facility, um, we can stick our our servers in with your existing video infrastructure. If you're decentralized, we can also host the solution on a 
on the, on the cloud and ingest your video feeds and do the processing there. So it's really just a matter of uh, how you prefer to deploy it. How do we get some additional information out to, to folks that might have some uh, interest? We've got some information on our website. If you'll go to the Alpine website and click on the threat and fraud section, we've got some ZeroEyes information right there on the first menu choice. Uh, you also go to ZeroEyes.com, which is their website, and learn about it. And you know, if you want to see a demonstration or if you're interested in evaluating the t- technology at your facility or your campus or your church, uh, we can certainly help you with that and show you how that works. And obviously, you can contact us here at Alpine, and we'll be happy to send you some information as well. I know, I know that uh, they've been working feverishly to try and find ways to enable pretty much any organization that might have interest in this by finding ways to bring the cost down, the cost for both in terms of deployment and operationally. Uh, and they've made some major strides uh, through the technology and, and the purpose being literally to try and get this into the hands of any organization that has concern or interest in it. From a societal point of view, this is really an objective that ZeroWise as well as Alpine carries forth and we will do anything and everything we can in order to help you to, to find a way to integrate and implement that within your, your facility. You know, one of the big questions we get is how much does this cost? Is this going to blow my budget? And it's actually pretty economical. As, as, as we talk to folks, one of the metrics, simple metrics that we come up with is the cost for this solution is roughly equivalent to buying each of your students or each of your employees, each of your parishioners, buying them uh, Starbucks Frappuccino each year, you know, four or five bucks a person. It's cost effective and and certainly worth looking at if you're concerned about, you know, firearms violence at your facility. Anything further uh, that, that we need to cover today? I think that covers it. Again, if you want to learn more about ZeroEyes, you can visit our website, alpineinc.com, click on Threat and Fraud, and we've got a number of uh, pages and resources that you can review and, and request more information on the technology, and we're certainly happy to talk to you about it. Fantastic. Well, Earl, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. And thank you all for taking the time to listen and uh, learn a little bit more. We're happy to, to spend time with you and, and further explore your, your particular application. One final note here, if you're concerned about protecting your employees, customers, students, or parishioners against the threat of mass shootings or firearms violence, we'd certainly like to help. Obviously, we don't have all the answers, But we do know technology and we believe that some of the same artificial intelligence that's being widely used today can be applied to protect those we're responsible for from firearms violence. If you'd like to learn more about Alpine, visit our website at alpineinc.com. And thanks for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. If you have any questions or comments about the information we've discussed in today's episode, leave a comment on our blog or drop me an email at estevens at alpineinc.com. Have a great day.